Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'm coming up. Uh, I got to pay the popper back there so I can. You can be heard. You can hear me. It's true. The devil doesn't like me. Doesn't like you either, by the way. But God loves me. God loves you too. Because God is love. You know, in our privilege to help folks all over the world with all kinds of problems, the one common denominator we found was that none of them knew who they were in Christ. Now, why is that the case? Where's the Abba Father? If the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit, I'm a child of God, why weren't they sensing that? Stop by our book table back there. We'll give you a little book. Uh, what do you call these things? Mark or whatever. <laughs> you know, and it, it really gives you something to stick in your refrigerator or to work through. It just identifying who you are in Christ, what it really means to be a child of God. Well, <clears throat> enough commercial time. I, uh, we asked uh, George Barna about three years ago to, to research some questions for us. We were struggling uh, with the problem of legalism and, and how prevalent that still is in our culture. Uh, it came out in a book, uh, Breaking the Strongholds of, of Legalism, or the Bondage of Legalism, and uh, our primary author behind that, there were three of us who worked on this, but uh, was, uh, was Paul Travis. He is our recovering fundamentalist. And... Uh, <clears throat> and... Uh, and, and just plagued with legalism. Anyway, we asked uh, some of the questions. Uh, by the way, marvelously knows the grace of God. It's kind of fascinating because I said, Paul, do you realize, I mean, he came out of King James only territory and uh, Bob Jones University and all of that. And I said, do you realize, I said, in writing this book, you're kind of drawing a line in the sand. And he said, I'm fully aware of that. <laughs> but actually, as we thought about it afterwards, does the legalist know they're a legalist? No, they see them as the acts, as the def ultimate defender of the faith. And, and, and actually, some of his uh, churches that supported him were really, you know, the old-fashioned fundamentalism, started to realize in re reading the book that, good grief, maybe I don't understand the grace of God. And so it's been kind of an interesting journey. But two of the questions, one was this, the Christian life is well summed up as trying hard to do what God commands. 82% agreed with that. 57% strongly. I, I remember years ago when I used to go out to ministries and I would say, uh, a Christian maturity is understanding the principles of the Bible and trying as best I can to live them. I'd ask how many would agree with that. Almost everybody did. I said, oh, I don't agree with that. I said, Christian maturity is character. And trying as best I can to do it should be heresy, folks. I mean, it's a, that's just a law concept. You know, we're here we're, you know, by the grace of God and we live that way. Amen. And... Uh, Another question, listen to this, and we, we actually use terms that would kind of be extreme. Rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. 66% agreed, 39% strongly. I mean, we were almost stunned. The point of it is, is that legalism in a lot of ways is still alive and well. And then I'm puzzled by the fact that we see all these problems of immorality, we see divorce, and we... Uh, preach out of the Old Testament, God hates divorce. Well, that's true, but so do divorcees, and don't forget that. And we see problems with drugs and alcohol and sex, and we preach against that. How's that working, by the way? <laughs> it never has worked. Actually, it never will work. But the Bible says if you walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. 
And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do you walk by the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the question then is, is how do you walk by the Spirit? The problem is, if I answered that by giving you three steps in a formula, I'd be putting you back under the law again. See, See the Spirit is not an it, it's a he. It's, we're talking essentially about walking with God. Now, this is not a new problem. When Nicodemus came to Jesus one night and said, how can I have eternal life? The Lord said, um, you must be born again. He said, born again? How can, a, again, a man enter into the womb of his mother? And the Lord said, well, you being a teacher of the law and you don't know such things, I'm talking about the wind, uh, about the Spirit. And the Spirit is like the wind. Somebody reflected on that passage and said, I think what we're supposed to do is pull in the oars and put up the sail. I like that. <laughs> but actually, this passage is, is telling you more what it's not than what it is. But that's helpful because what he's defining here is two parameters by which you and I can live in, in, a, in a wonderful relationship with God, under the grace of God. So two things, first of all, it's not. Number one, walking by the Spirit is not license. That's an old King James term. Remember, licentious? It means a total disregard for rules and regulations. Now, look at what's happened in our own history. I mean, to me, as a child, going to church was like going to a weenie roast, you know, turn or burn. I mean... <clears throat> If you didn't get your dose of guilt, you wanted to get your neckle back out of the plate, you know. And, and then the Jesus movement came, and, and uh, everybody kind of seemingly discovered that God was love. And, and you just flow by the Spirit, and you can do whatever you want to do. Have a joint, you know. And, and um, <clears throat> no, actually, to walk by the Spirit so that you don't carry out the desires of the flesh, so that you don't do the things that you desire. So whatever it means to walk by the Spirit is not license. I mean, we still have a standard. We're called to live a righteous life, but you can't do it on the basis of the law. That's the point. Well, <clears throat> let me illustrate that. I remember when I was kind of young in ministry, uh, we had a Catholic family live beside us, and nice family, and they um, had eight kids in a three-bedroom house. I don't know how they did that, but, uh, but their older two daughters would babysit my little children at that time, and we were always looking for an opportunity to share the love of Christ. Well, one Sunday night at 10 o'clock it came. Their oldest girl was senior in high school, and she knocked on my door at 10 o'clock, had curlers in her hair, and she said, oh, oh, I forgot to ask you, can you come down to St. Anthony's and talk to my religion class about Protestant Christianity? I said, well, I'll pray about it. As a matter of fact, I said I can. And um, <laughs> so, you know, St. Anthony's was a... Catholic school down in Long Beach. It was a good school. And I walked in. I met the Monsignor. And I said, listen, if any way I misrepresent Catholicism, I said, please feel free for my sake to interrupt me. And he said, fine. So I started with the Reformation and justification by faith and Martin Luther and told everybody how they could have a personal relationship with God and handed out a four spiritual laws. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> opened it up for questions. And the guy in the back, Mr. Cool, Letterman's jacket and he said, do you have a lot of don'ts in your religion? I said, I hope I don't have any God doesn't. I said, uh, but I 
think what you're really asking me is, do I have any freedom? And they said, well, yeah. I said, sure. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Come on. Well, actually, can't I? I mean, couldn't I walk out of here today and decide to go rob a bank? But if I did that, wouldn't I be in bondage to that act the rest of my life, always looking over my shoulder, wondering whether or not I'll be caught? I suppose I'm free to tell a lie, but I'd have to remember who I told the lie to and what I told them. Do you remember those days? <laughs> You're still having those days? <laughs> See, what a lot of people think is freedom really isn't. It's just license. I mean, it's just a... And, and that doesn't work because what actually happens is it just leads to bondage. See, it doesn't just lie in the exercise of choices. It's really related to the consequences of those choices. And I said, what God has do, given me to, the freedom is to make the kind of choices that I can maintain the freedom that he purchased for me on the cross. By the way, I said, are you free? How come you're wearing that Letterman's jacket? Well, anyway, <clears throat> you know, the, the bell rang and everybody left. And the Monsignor came up and said, that was terrific. <laughs> I wanted to say which part, but... Uh, so whatever it means to walk by the, by, the, by the Spirit is not license. But it's not legalism either. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, I don't think there's anybody in here more concerned about I than I am about our problem of immorality. I mean, we're, we're being tore apart with sexual sins and all kinds of problems, aren't we? But if you want to relate to God purely on the basis of the law, there's three things you ought to know from Scripture. Number one, go back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You do bring your Bibles to church, don't you? I'm going to tell Greg on you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Great. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So the number one problem is if you want to live under the law, all you'll do is feel cursed. You'll be a driven person. Paul says if you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. And so are we all guilty? Yes, we all. Apart from Christ, we all are guilty, aren't we? And, uh, but you'll just be this perfectionist. You'll be a pain in the neck to yourself and everybody around you. You'll try to live up to some standard and, and, and fail and, uh, and uh, just feel driven, and, and it won't work for you. Verse 11 says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. It is evident. But how come after 2,000 years of new covenant teaching, we're still loving under the law? Uh, verse 12 says, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, actually, here's his answer, verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, think about this for a moment. How much do we do, you know, just our own humanity for that matter, that is based on a law or principle that would cause me to respond in obedience? as opposed to a life concept. See, what Jesus came to give us was life. What Adam and Eve lost in the fall was life. And, and now that we have life in Christ, that your soul is in Christ, you're in union with Him, that we learn to walk by faith according to what God said is true, 
in the power of the Holy Spirit and not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, any honest New Testament theologian would say the first is law and the second is grace. That what God has called us to do is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You are saved by faith and you're sanctified by faith. And so what we work to do is to change what people believe because what you're living is simply what you've chosen to believe. And so God had to change who we are, but he did. He made us a new creation in Christ. And then we are being transformed now by the renewing of our mind. So the number one problem here is, is that if you want to live under the law, then all you do is just feel cursed. You'll just feel guilty all your life and, and driven and never able to live up to that standard. Second problem. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But it's not. See, the law is powerless to give life. Listen, we are servants of a new covenant, for the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Life. Now, let me put this in a practical way. Telling somebody what they're doing is wrong does not give them the power to stop doing it. I mean, even the government has given up on the D.A.R.E. program. Just say no. <laughs> now, folks, if you've been, you know, off your addictive behavior for five years and never gotten there, that may be a helpful reminder, but it, it, there's no power there to change. Now, I saw this in a remarkable way a few years ago in, uh, when I still live in California. The Los Angeles Times came out with an article. Uh, it wasn't news. It was just one of those interesting articles that people write occasionally and but it was written by a gal who was commissioned by the state of California to go around to our public schools and essentially teach safe sex. She was a state expert. And, uh, and so somehow or another, if she could just teach these kids to practice safe sex and everything would be okay. But as she thought about that, she herself had a major weight problem. And because of that, she had read numerous books on nutrition and exercise and diet. She probably could go out and lecture on that as well because she had read so much about it. But knowing those things that day did not keep her from having her second piece of pie. Now, I thought this is incredibly insightful and honest, for that matter. But, but what she was reflecting on is that here I am, I'm supposed to be a mature adult, and I'm going to teach these schools, you know, so that these young people, if they simply would know what to do, that they would just naturally go out and do it. But that principle didn't even work for me. Isn't that insightful? It really honestly is. I mean, it's kind of fascinating that here we are, you know, 21st century now. Well, we've got to lay down the law. Well, one, you'll feel cursed. Two, there's no power there to change. Thirdly, go back to Romans chapter 7. This is even more condemning. Romans, by the way, you know what's interesting? Romans 7, Galatians 3. Paul is, is really trying to answer the question, is the law then sinful? Um, now, and he answers that. No. Do we have a moral standard? Yes. Does the law reflect that? Did Jesus do away with the law? No, he came to fulfill it, didn't he? Uh, so now look what happened. Here's the third point. Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Here's the point. 
the law actually has the capacity to stimulate the desire to do what it's intended to prohibit. Now, if you don't think that's true, go home and tell your young boy, son, you can go here, but you can't go there. Now, the moment you say that, where does he want to go? There. He probably didn't even want to go there before. <laughs> I, I remember uh, a parochial school used to print a list of movies the kids could not see. Those were the good ones. They would take the list off the wall and share with each other. Why is there forbidden fruit the most desirable? Now, if you don't think that's true, Adam and Eve had never sinned. You can eat from any tree, but not that one. You know, what happens? You know, wet paint. Really? <laughs> you know, down in Galveston, you know, a hurricane came in, wiped out a resort, and, and they uh, rebuilt it and put the pilings deeper, and they had a balcony hung over a bay. It said, no fishing. Everybody wanted to fish. Sneak out there at night, and, you know, took the sign down, nobody wanted to fish. You know, it's, it's really kind of fascinating to me that... that we still struggle under this. And I kind of discovered something for myself. I said, I think by and large, the average Christian would actually prefer law over grace. They kind of want somebody to go to church. This is right and this is wrong. Scold me when I'm wrong. Tell me when I'm, encourage me when I'm doing something right. And Christianity is nothing but a philosophy then that you live by. It's a living relationship with God, folks. And he's my father and I'm his child. And... Uh, yeah, there are standards there, but to live that way, I can't. Now, see, if it's not license and if it's not legalism, what is it? It is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty. Now, go back to Galatians chapter 5. Those three verses I read earlier are like a summary of this chapter. Look at how it begins. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom... That Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Don't go back to the law. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't go back to license. It's not license. It's not legalism. It is liberty. Now, I got a joke. I mean, it's, uh, it's worthless as a joke. So don't tell me later it's a bum joke. It's a bum joke. But here's a joke. Hopefully, it'll help you remember, okay? Now, here's a narrow mountain road ahead of you as a church. And, uh, and you're in this narrow. It's albeit it's a narrow path, okay? And uh, over here is a cliff. It's too steep to climb down, too far to jump. And over here is a roaring forest fire. Church, cliff, forest fire, and a bear behind you. <coughs> Which way would you run? You'd go to that church with a bear behind? I told you, it has no value as a joke, okay? I mean, now, now, here's an option over here, isn't there? Just sail off that cliff, man. Can you imagine the exhilaration of that? Like a guy who jumped off the Empire State Building, hurt on the way down. So far, so good, you know. But there's serious consequences to that choice. Remember back in the 60s, free sex. Free? Was it free, folks? I can use my body any way I want to. You know, it is so staggering right now. I said, if the trend continues in this world, by the year 2020, 70 million people will die of AIDS. 
Here's the paradox. It is by far the most deadly, incurable disease we have, and by far the most preventable. All you got to do is abstain. You could stop it tomorrow, couldn't you? Somebody told me once, he said, the best birth control pill yet is still an aspirin. Held firmly between the knees. Uh, I'm glad my wife isn't here. You're tired. You're telling things you shouldn't say. But anyway, uh, see, what's interesting about that is, I mean, the whole nature of temptation, it looks good. If it didn't look good or feel good or taste good, you wouldn't be tempted. When's the last time you were tempted to eat spinach? Never. I mean, it, it, I mean, it looks good, right? Now, see, but, but there are serious consequences to that choice, like the stop at the end. And, and, and that's the problem with license. I mean, just go do whatever you want to do. But, but there's consequences, isn't there, to choices like that? Well, here's a choice over here. You know, burn, baby, burn. Just going back into that old legalism, you know, ritual and... And that, that's no good either. Now, that's how the devil operates. Over here he says, come on, man. You want to do it? I know you do. You'll do it. Everybody's doing it. You'll get away with it. And so you, you do it. Now, the moment you enter into sin, what happens? He changes his role. He becomes accuser. Yeah, you sicko, you know. And uh, <laughs> call yourself a Christian. And, uh, and you realize you've been had. It's, you know, and then you get in the sin, confess, sin, confess, I give up cycle. And, uh, but what is this path? Now, the Bible says, if you walk by the Spirit. Now, that implies two things. It's not sit and it's not run. I, I think the big evangelical error is run. The devil can't make you immoral, just make you busy. You know, look at all the things we did. We went here, we went there. We did this, we did that. All right, how much fruit remains? Amen. That's the only question the New Testament's asking. It wasn't asking, you know, how many activities you participated in. He's asking how much fruit remains. No fruit, no growth. No growth, no fruit. And uh, uh, what's interesting about that is, is that some may choose the opposite. You know, sit around in some holy piety, expecting God to do it all. Under this new covenant that we're in, it, it's really kind of fascinating. How much gets done if I expect God to do it all? The answer, ironically, is nothing. How much if I try to do it all by myself? The answer is no. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. When you look at this whole growth or sanctification process, God ultimately is the sanctifier. But what happens if you don't water a plant? Nothing grows. But he causes the increase. So it's, it's functioning together with God, essentially. If, if we don't do our part to study, to grow, to believe, whatever else, we don't grow. But if you're trying to do that independent of God and your own strength and resources, what happens? No growth. So it really is a walk with God. It's like the pastor on his day off had a wonderful hobby of gardening, and one of his old deacons came by and said, boy, the Lord sure gave you a beautiful garden. He said, you should have seen him when God had it by himself. And, uh, <laughs> now go back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, this is a very familiar passage to all of you. Maybe a little different slant on it this morning for you. Matthew chapter uh, 11, verse 28. The Lord says, uh, Jesus is saying, come to me. It didn't say, come to this fine church or come to one of Niels' conferences. He says, come to me, come to my presence. 
all who are weary and heavy laden. That's probably all of us. <laughs> I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound good? Take my yoke. I don't need another yoke. You know what's strange about this is that you can't even put this yoke on unless you throw all the others off. And actually, if you look at the context, the other one you're throwing off is the yoke of legalism again. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I'm an old farm boy. My, my uh, uh, father immigrated, grandfather from Norway, settled on a farm in Minnesota. My dad was born there. I was born there. I walked a mile to country school that my grandfather built. <laughs> Neat heritage. Uh, but there was, there was still trappings out in our granary and garage of uh, my dad started farming with horses. And he would explain to me how they would break in a young horse. But what's interesting, when you look at the metaphor here, that the Lord says, take my yoke upon you. See, the Lord was a carpenter. Uh, carpenters in those days didn't frame houses. They didn't build houses that way. Carpenters fashioned yokes and doors, metaphors the Lord used about himself. But look at the picture. He said, take my yoke upon you. Now, if you took two oxen, you got that big heavy wooden beam that fits over their two shoulders. How well does that work if there's only one in it? It doesn't. Actually, it'd be better off if you didn't have it on. Wouldn't it just be a binding, chafing event? The only way it works is if the two are in it and pulling together. Now, what they would do then, as well as today, if you wanted to break in a young ox, what would you do? You would yoke them together with an old, old ox who had learned obedience through the things that he suffered, which the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. And uh, what would the young ox do, though? What, what would his tendency typically be? Going a little slow for me, pops. I'm going to run on ahead. Do you know what he'd get? Sore neck. <laughs> Isaiah says, Though vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait upon the Lord, they shall mount up with wings like eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Or they'd be tempted to drop out. Hey, life goes on, doesn't it? Or you stray off to left or right. And suddenly one day you start to realize, that old ox knows how to walk. And I'm going to learn from him. And you learn to take one day at a time. You learn the priority of relationships. You learn the New Testament. Because you're walking with Jesus. Now let me illustrate that in another way. When, uh, right before my, in fact, I, I came back to Minnesota to work as an engineer. I worked for Honeywell uh, back in the 60s. Gee, that's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, Anyway, we bought a little poodle. I mean, Joanne was pregnant with our daughter at that time. And so my two children grew up with Missy. And when Missy died after 12 years or so, it was trauma time. And I wanted to be a good parent, so I went out and got a, another dog. Now, this is a marriage on the rebound story. Folks. What I got was a D-A-W-G, a dog. Buster was the most neurotic mess you've ever seen in your life. I mean, I would leave the gate open. You know, the problem with little puppies, they grow up to be dogs. Anyway... It, was, it just was a bad choice. And so I'd leave the gate open hoping he'd run away. He wouldn't even do that. And uh, for some sad reason, my son liked him. And, uh, well, our little town we were in at that time had, uh, had a city classes they would offer. And one was a dog obedience school. So you got 10 lessons for $25. Bring a choke chain and your dog. So I bought a choke chain, and I sent Carl, my son, off to dog obedience school with Buster. 
And after two weeks, the dog had thoroughly trained Carl, so we gave up on that. And, uh, but one day I said, I'm, I'm going to try it. I'm going to take this dog for a walk. Not a run. I'm going for a walk. Well, I put that choke chain on that dog, and as soon as we stepped out, now see, I'm the master. I know where I want to walk, and I'm going for a walk, not a run. But for that stupid dog, the whole thing was nothing but this. Ah! Choking himself to death, you know. Wanting to run on ahead or stop and sniff some gross thing. I just kept walking. I didn't care if I drug him that whole thing. I mean, I was determined. I'm going to keep on walking. Or he would go around a pool. Boy, that was exciting. Tick, tick, tick. You know, I just kept on walking. You say, did that dumb dog ever learn to walk by its master? No, I never did. Met a few Christians that haven't either. Haven't you? <laughs> some run out ahead and burn out, and some drop off, and some stray off to the left or the right. But even if that's your case, you know what? The Lord would still say, come to me. Come to me. Learn from me. Get connect. Get yoked with me. And learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble of heart. Now, it's a walk. But you're also led by the Spirit. Applies two things. You're not being pushed or lured over here. If you got this going, come over here. We got this secret meeting. God does everything in the light. You got secret meetings going on, you're in trouble with God. Or pushing you to make some hasty decision. Neil, you got to decide now. All right, no. Why are you saying that? I said, because God doesn't guide that way. You see, the guidance of God may come suddenly, like it did at Pentecost, but how many days of prayerful preparation preceded that? So when somebody's pushing you to make a hasty decision without prayerful re reflection, it isn't God, folks. That's why we need to know Him and, and the type of guidance that He would bring to us. Uh, so when I look back at my lifetime in southern Minnesota, we raised sheep. And uh, it, it brings up a lot of memories for me. You know, He's the great shepherd. We're the sheep of His pasture. And and, uh, and most of those memories are really pretty good, actually. But there is a little bit of a downside to it. If you're not aware of this, sheep are about the dumbest animal on the farm. Amen. And they rank right up there with chickens. <laughs> For instance, you can self-feed cattle. You can self-feed pigs. You can't self-feed sheep. Do you know why? They'll sit there and eat, 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 bloat, and die. <laughs> and especially if it's really lush green grass. You put them out there, what'll happen? They'll just sit there and eat and bloat and die on you. I actually believe that's why the 23rd Psalm says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Because if, you, you know, we'd probably all eat ourselves to death. But anyway, uh, now, in Minnesota, you know, when the spring would come and snows would melt, right before the 4th of July, <laughs> uh, I heard Garrison Keeler one time, he says, God gives people in Minnesota the month of March so that those who don't drink can know what a hangover is. <laughs> anyway, what would happen is our roadsides would, uh, the snow would melt, and the, and the lush green grass would come up, and Dad would say, take the sheep out there, but keep them moving, and no more than half an hour, an hour, because they literally could kill themselves. And so we chased the sheep out there, you know, like an Australian sheepdog would bark at the heels of the sheep. But I've had the privilege to study twice in Israel. And uh, uh, I was over one time on the Herodian. It's one of Herod's seven fortresses. Masada is another one. 
It's out by Bethany. And it's, it's a cone-shaped hill. And he had this fortress on top of it. It's ruins now, of course. But, but I was just sitting up there in a wall. And I looked down the slopes. And there was a, a shepherd with some sheep. And suddenly he kind of got up and said something and walked off. And the sheep looked up and followed him. I took ten pictures. I was so excited. I got ten pictures of dots. But... Uh, <laughs> But I was so excited because foreign to my experience where we would chase the sheep from the back, the shepherds in Israel, even to this day, still lead from the front. You know the verse, don't you? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. All of those who are being led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. How do you walk by the Spirit? It's not license. It's not legalism. It is a walk. It's not running around in some endless activity, filling up your calendar with busy days. It's not sitting around in some holy piety. Think about it, folks. You and I have been invited to walk with the gentle Jesus. Why in the world would you want a spirit guide when you can have the Holy Spirit as your guide? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet. We would have no way of knowing these things. But you've given us the truth. And we choose to believe that truth. And we choose to live by faith according to what you said is true. But Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us the power to change. The power to walk. The power to live. As you've intended us to live. Not under the old covenant where the law kills. But under the new covenant where the spirit gives life. And thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that we can actually live a righteous life. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Somebody's going to come in and close. But my airplane leaves at 2.30. I'm out of here. We'll see you again. <laughs>